Welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and what we can do to make them better. I'm Manny Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. Good to see you, Dylan. It is our probably last episode for the summer until we both get back from respective travel that we're doing over the summer. So I am happy to be here with you. What do you got planned for the summer? Yeah, we're going to go see my family in New York, and then we're going to go see my wife, Maya's family in Israel. We're going to spend some time in both those places. So yeah, we'll be gone for a while. And for our our audience, you can still reach us on social media or email and send us some thoughts or episode ideas, and we will come back with more episodes later this year. Definitely. Yeah, I'm excited to stick to our usual schedule, which is uh, every two weeks we release an episode. We try to do it on the weekend um, and we will get back to that sometime in I think it's August. Yeah, I think we're going to get started again. Yeah, right. And yeah, I will also be out of town. I'm going to be visiting a friend of mine, uh, Gabor Oros. He's a faculty member at the University of Artois in France, and he's invited me uh, as a visiting scholar. So I'm going to be doing that. And then I'm taking a little bit of trip to a couple other countries until I go to Turkey, where my my partner's family is, and then visit with them a little bit. It's 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 just always weird doing travel, especially to somewhere like Europe for someone like me, because I'm from small town. You know, I never really went to Europe until last year for the first time visiting uh, my partner's family. And so it's uh, it's just been a wild ride. Academia can take you places if you if you make those relationships and stuff like that. So it's been a lot of fun. I am looking forward to our next episodes. But for today, we have a fresh, awesome new episode covering Dylan's new paper, which is titled No Remorse, Sexual Infidelity. Uh, is not clearly linked with relationship satisfaction or well-being in Ashley Madison users, which was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. Sounds pretty spicy, Dylan. Um, (laughs) Can you set up the paper, just discuss some of the prior research, some of the conventional wisdom that is out there about infidelity? Yeah, I I guess this is the spiciest paper that I've ever published in in an (laughs) academic sense. So for a long while, the research on infidelity and romantic relationships kind of centered around this idea of the relationship deficit model, which means that people cheat when something in their relationship is not going well. And there were some Mm. papers in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s basically converging on this idea. And the authors themselves said things like, yeah, sometimes there's other things that don't have to do with the relationship. But really, at its core, everybody's motivated in a sense because there's something about their relationship with their spouse or partner that's not going well. So maybe they are not as intimate as they once were, or there's lacking feelings of passion, or there's conflict and anger. And I got interested in this topic in part because of some findings that emerged from my dissertation research, which was on dreams. And we did an episode uh, talking about Mm -hmm. my research on dreams that was a little over a year ago. One of the things that I discovered was that a lot of the participants in my study, when they 
wrote down their dreams and reported them, the dreams they had contained infidelity. That is, they were cheating on their partners in their dream or their partners were cheating on them in their dream. And so I was like, okay, well, let's 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 go deeper down that down that rabbit hole. Let's let's dive into some more research on infidelity and reading the background research in this area. I was like, all right, there's something missing here because I I had a strong suspicion that there were other motivations that people had to to cheat that uh, didn't have to do with their relationship. And some of my more recent papers, one from 2019 and one from 2021, co-authored by my colleagues Justin Garcia and Irene Zapellas, we we found exactly that. We we found that sure, a lot of a lot of the time people did cheat on their partners because there was something bad happening in their relationship, but not always. As you know, sometimes people were motivated more because they just desired lots of sexual variety, or they wanted more. A sense of independence and autonomy in their lives, or something about the situation that was influencing their behavior, like maybe they were very stressed out or intoxicated, or in a situation that was just not the norm for them, like they were on vacation or something like that. And so just d- demonstrating that idea that there's a variety of reasons for people to cheat, sometimes it has to do with the relationship, sometimes not, that kind of motivated this newest study on Ashley Madison users. Gotcha. And, you know, hearing you talk through that, some of that I feel like it's almost introducing maybe new deficits that hadn't been considered before. At least one could frame it that way. I mean, if you want sexual variety and your relationship's not allowing for sexual variety, is that a kind of new deficit that one might consider? Or do you not see it as a deficit and instead it's something else? How do you how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess you could think about it more as a limitation in terms Mm. of being in a monogamous exclusive relationship. You're only going to have sex with one person. And it's not really a deficit because by definition, you're going to only be having sex with that one individual. It's not possible to have more. So I I wouldn't necessarily label that a deficit. But it, but it is interesting to think about relationships that way because we don't think about other types of relationships that way. We don't say, oh, well, you only have one sibling or one friend. Like you could have lots of friends and lots of siblings and it wouldn't be considered a, a violation of those relationships to be emotionally intimate with other people. Yeah, because there's not that like expectation right i mean i guess you could have like a really possessive friend who doesn't want you to be friends with anybody else or something but in the context of a romantic relationship the possessiveness is part is the game i mean like monogamy is about isolating like your sexual behavior with one person and so that's violating that expectation anyway we'll get into more of this i do want to hear more about your recent paper and tell us about ashley madison and the emergence of online cheating i think that's a really interesting thing that you note in the paper that prior to you know the emergence of online dating and then ashley madison as a online cheating platform cheating was really done in person it was a thing you kind of a relationship you established and you had to navigate that like the secrecy and and the discretion of the other person um and now it's it's like something you can do online you could even have just a purely like over text kind of illicit relationship with somebody who's not your partner and then how did you get access to these folks these ashley madison user i imagine they're very like privacy concerned and and trying to get a lot of discretion but you're asking them a bunch of questions about how they feel about 
about their relationship. So uh, tell us about it. Yeah, that's that's one thing I always note as a caveat to the research in this area, which is we only know about the people who are willing to tell us that they cheated. Like there, there's there's an upper limit. There, there's never been in the history of social science. There's never been an observational study of people cheating. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can never we can never ethically or physically do that. Feasibly do that. Yeah. So Ashley Madison is basically a dating app slash website for people who are married and want to have affairs. So in a sense, it's similar in its function to other dating platforms like Tinder or Hinge or OkCupid or, you know, any any of the other ones. I guess the people who started this company just felt like, oh, here's here's a niche market of people who are in relationships but want to have sex or have affairs with other people and we can provide them a service to do that. And a lot of people feel this kind of moral a violation happening here just the mere existence of yeah the ethics of it seem dubious (laughs) yeah 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 and you know i think as you said people are gonna find ways to have affairs like if if that's something that they want if people are motivated there's lots of ways for people to connect and meet each other and this is just one of those ways like when when we talk about and i've i've actually done some research on other online dating platforms, the experiences people have on apps like Tinder, for example. And I think there's a stereotype that the online methods for meeting people are different than the offline ones. I don't think there is much to support that stereotype in the general research on dating. And in this case, for Ashley Madison, like I I think a lot of people just assumed, oh, this is this is an area of interaction that Ashley Madison users are just different from other people and and different from other contexts. I I guess I leave that more as an open question. I think probably it's the case that Ashley Madison users are a bit more motivated than someone else who's looking more casually for an affair. Right. But with regards to the question of how we got to these folks, so the People at the the data team at Ashley Madison actually reached out to me after I had published some of those other papers that I mentioned. So cool. And and they said, hey, we noticed you're doing research on infidelity. We happen to have a website and an app dedicated to exactly that. Wow. So they they basically offered to distribute my survey to their user base. So and and I I was a little bit hesitant at first when they reached out because I was like, well, I don't want to partner with them on research. I want to do my own research. And I was relieved when they said, yeah, we're we're totally supportive of that. You 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 have 100 percent control over everything. All we're going to do is distribute on our end. So we'll we'll advertise this to our user base and give you the data. I was like, all right, great. Let's let's do it. And I teamed up with my wonderful colleague, Samantha Joel who's, uh, you know, really making waves in the relationships research field. And I was happy to have her as a collaborator. And uh, her student, Victoria Dale, was also on the project. What what do you perceive their motivations are? Like, why why do they why did they reach out to you and, and want to work with you, uh, even if they did give you full latitude to ask the questions you want to ask? Like, what, what are they trying to get? What are they getting out of it? My suspicion is that for them, any press is good press, like right. any PR, any time a 
an academic paper or any kind of coverage comes out about their platform because they've they've had some notoriety in recent years, yeah. as you said, like data breaches and other types of ethical concerns right. about the 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 mere existence and the function of this company. But I think, you know, I, I it, I'm speculating a bit here. I think they probably had an intuition that their user base they're just like regular people, you know, they're not ogres or monsters and probably any study that assesses psychological variables and experiences that their users have would show that. Mm-hmm. And that was that was my hunch too, you know, going into it. Right. And I think that fact is good for the world to know and may end up being good for them as a business. I don't know. I don't I don't know what's going to happen to them. I don't really have a stake in that. But that would that would be my hunch is to just say, oh, like here's here's a study that shows Ashley Madison users are people. Right. And that's 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 probably good for them. Yeah. And, and I'll just say for the audience member, maybe who has been cheated on or is listening to this conversation and, and horrified uh, by, you know, the the suggestion that that cheaters aren't ogres or whatever, we will talk a little bit more about like the ethics and that kind of thing at the end towards the end of the conversation. But we're just covering some of the results now. And so so, yeah, what was the study design? Uh, you you gave the you gave out two different surveys at two different time points. Can you talk through some, some of what what was yeah. motivating that and then how that kind of worked? Yeah, well, we wanted to. So part part of my colleague Sam's research is focused on judgment and decision making in relationships. So we kind of looked at her research interests and my research interests on motivations and experiences with infidelity and said, okay, well, let's let's send out a survey at two time points, several months apart, and say, what might we be able to predict about people's outcomes in relationships based on their uh, prior behavior. So yeah, we sent out two surveys. We had a bunch of people who who completed each one of those separately, and then some who overlapped and completed both of them together. So we that was a smaller sample, but it was still like between two and 300 people. And then we had in total just under 2000 people uh, for all three of the samples. What's the time between time one and time two? It was about three months. Gotcha. Yeah, so what we were hoping is to get some folks, especially those who maybe were new to the site and hadn't yet had an affair, and then predict what variables would be associated with the decision to actually go forward and, and have an affair and what, what the consequences of that would be. And so we asked kind of a standard array of questions about relationship health and well-being. So how satisfied people are in their marriages, how much intimacy they feel with their partners, how much love they feel, how much conflict they have. And one thing that kind of surprised us when we looked at these data just on a descriptive level is that the relationship well-being scores were not bad, like pretty moderate. You know, there were we, we didn't get very high scores, but we didn't get very low scores either. And the scores on love in relationships were of, of particular notes, the participants seemed to feel connected to their partners, but sexual dissatisfaction was very high. So people were, as a group, this is a sample of people who felt very unsatisfied with their sex lives. A 50% of our samples said they were not sexually active at all with their partners. And to give you some further context on this, this is a sample of mostly middle-aged heterosexual men. There were only about only about 10% of our sample were women, 
That's interesting. What are the demographics of the website? I, I imagine it's just like a bunch of dudes looking and there's like a small number of there's like a there's got to be like a three to one ratio of, of heterosexual men to heterosexual women or something like that I, I i don't know that's my intuition at least yeah i think i think you're right i think the gender breakdown is skewed in terms of ashley madison users in general i mean in general we do see men are more positively inclined toward affairs in terms of their attitudes right and also men score higher in a, a, a trait called sociosexuality, which is the degree to which people psychologically link love with sex. So men tend to compartmentalize those two things a bit more than women do. Women tend to prefer more than men. Women tend to prefer sex in the context of emotional connection and, and love. Gotcha. So it's it's actually not very surprising that there would be a gender skew. We weren't expecting it to be 90-10, which is which is what we got. But I think, you know, overall, just to circle back, just characterizing the nature of the sample is that they they seemed to be having relationships that were really not terrible. A bunch of them, I think about a quarter, said that they sought couples counseling to improve their relationships. So again, it seems to be a group of people who value their marriages, but are also very sexually dissatisfied and and are looking for that in an affair. So is this not consistent with the relationship deficit model? It seems like the deficit is sexual satisfaction for a big chunk of them, but it's not a complete, the whole relationship's not bad. It's just that there are aspects that especially sexual aspects that that people are trying to remedy with extramarital affairs or extra relational affairs. Does that sound right? Or, or am I missing that? I think it is and it isn't. If we're thinking about sexual dissatisfaction by itself, I think that could be construed as something related to a relationship deficits, that there's something in the relationship that is not satisfying. However, as we'll talk about in a minute with the motivation variable, sometimes people are just seeking sexual variety. And that's not something that can be satisfied in a monogamous relationship because you're only having sex with one partner by default. In addition, I think sexual dissatisfaction is just one piece of the puzzle. And the relationship deficit theory suggests that overall, people's relationships are bad if if people are motivated to cheat. And I we see. just didn't see evidence for that so you're kind of advocating for like a more nuanced version of the relationship deficit model exactly that doesn't say the entire relationship is in deficit it's it's aspects of it that kind of might motivate people and there could be something on a personal level that they just have different preferences and i think maybe there's people listening who are like well what about consensual non-monogamy which is something that comes up in the paper here and there and i'm just curious i think there was a few participants who claim to be in consensual non-monogamous relationships uh what did you find as part of the study with with that concept and maybe explain what that is for people who may not know yeah yeah great question so consensual non-monogamy is the kind of academic jargony term for some kind of open relationship and they take many forms so sometimes people have swinging relationships where they will hook up with other people, both partners know and they're and they're cool with it. And then there's things like polyamory, which is where people have ongoing intimate relationships with more than one person. So you might have a primary relationship partner, which could be your spouse, but then you have other 
boyfriends or girlfriends. They're just other other significant others in your life. Um, and my colleagues, including Amy Moores, we've studied consensual non-monogamy and, and published about that in, in other papers. In this study, we wanted to know because we had a suspicion that at least some people were going to say, yeah, my partner knows that I'm on this website and that I'm looking for other partners and that's okay. It, as far as the actual responses we got, we got some tricky to interpret results. We, we got some mixed signals from our participants. <laughs> so when, when we asked the straight up question, you know, do you have a consensual, consensually non-monogamous relationship? then we had, I think, about 10 to 15% of participants say, yes, that does describe me. But when we ask about other questions like, do you have an exclusive relationship with your partner? Do you have an agreement that you won't have sex with anyone else? Or, or have you at some point had this? Then we get responses that are numerically inconsistent. So if you you know add up all the scores that we see in the sample, they kind of add up to more than 100%, which is impossible. Like mm. you can't have an open relationship and an exclusive relationship yeah. at the same time. <laughs> so we we noted that in the paper and we said, you know, we got some inconsistent responses from our participants. And that could mean, I mean, we can speculate here about what that means. It could mean that people in relationships sometimes miscommunicate with their partners. And there's other studies that show evidence of that. Like there's a great paper from a little over 10 years ago. I think, it, yeah, I think it came out 11 years ago, basically showing that if you ask couples, do you have a monogamous relationship? They will disagree and give different responses to a surprisingly high extent. Mm. And they will also disagree about whether monogamy had been violated, like whether one of them had cheated or not. Mm. Like one person says yes, one person says, well, it was just a kiss one time, you know, not really. Like they, they so so I I I suspect that at least part of what's happening here is people aren't communicating well with their partners about what it means to be monogamous. And that is driving some of the inconsistency in their responses. That last point really makes me think about real life scenarios that I've had friends in, and family or, or people I know who have been cheated on. Right. And I think if you were talking to a friend of yours and she said, yeah, my partner kissed some other girl, he said it wasn't cheating. You, you and your friend would have a immediate understanding that the partner is either lying or is delusional or something. You know what I mean? Like this person is trying to hide or, or, or downplay the fact that they engaged in cheating behavior that if it had happened to them, presumably they would be like, and, and, and your friend had cheated, you know, or had, had kissed somebody else. They'd probably be like, Hey, this is cheating. But you know, we all have this tendency to be like, well, I, I, I didn't really hit that car. I actually just like bumped <laughs> into it a little bit. And we like downplay this, this negative aspects, our behavior. And I think this brings up like a whole concern about this study. Like, how do you think about dishonesty in the context of your study? I think in general, self-serving biases are a thing that we as social psychologists deal with a lot in our research. And people do all kinds of mental gymnastics to convince themselves that they haven't really done something morally wrong. I mean, to 
to your last point, though, in that that example, it could be that a person who kisses someone else would say, yeah, I'd be fine if my partner did that. Possibly. On yeah. the other hand, on the, on the other hand, it could be that they're coming up with some other justification or excuse for why that happened and they wouldn't want their partner to do that. And I don't think that necessarily is a problem for the methodology. I think that's something that we are discovering with the methodology. Like we're seeing the inconsistency in responses and that's part of our understanding is people will not always be honest or give contradictory responses to the questions we ask and we're just taking that as part of the part of the package of information we have is that yeah if we if we run this study again i mean we did get fairly consistent responses across the samples that we had so that makes me feel a little bit you know more confident in in these results but yeah if we if we get those people in a room with a uh, fake lie detector test but we but they think that it's real maybe maybe their responses will change maybe they'll say oh yeah you know i i did do this unethical thing now that i think you're gonna discover what i did then now maybe i'll be a bit more honest i mean we we have other other studies like that where people's responses to questions about sex and relationships will change if they feel like the researchers have some more accurate insight into their behaviors. Yeah. You know, part of me wonders, what if you did it? Like, I, I'm not sure if this is a question you asked and it's just not reported or, or maybe it was and I, I missed it. But is there a question along the lines of how would you feel if your partner cheated on you? If you found out that your partner yeah. was cheating on you? They presumably think it's okay for them to do it. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Also, do they perceive that, that what they're doing is a, a big ethical lapse and they just do it anyway? Like, is there data speak to speak to that? Great question. So first of all, we did not ask those questions directly. We, we did not ask people whether they would be okay if their partners were cheating or, you know, do you think you're doing something wrong was gotcha. uh, not one of the questions that we asked. I, I had hoped to address the question of ethics in a, in a more subtle way. So let me, let me give you and the listeners here a little bit more of the backstory of what I was hoping to do with the study, I was hoping to look at people's moral concerns in terms of moral foundations theory, and then see how those mapped onto the motivations that people had for infidelity and also the feelings of possible regret or other reasons that they gave for not having an affair. Unfortunately, those data didn't work out very well. That's why you're not going to see them in the final version of the paper. And the reason is because the questionnaire that we use to measure the moral foundations was just not very statistically reliable. So my colleagues and I decided just to put it in a supplementary document, which is also available to read. So for people who are curious, we have that as a supplemental file, and maybe it will motivate some future research on moral foundations and infidelity or, you know, moral concerns in a more general sense. Maybe you could break down what moral foundations are just to give people a sense of that. So moral foundations theory is something that I've been very interested in and, and working with for a long time. And it's this idea that there's a variety of diversity of moral concerns that people have. So we have evidence for at least five or six, possibly more exist that we have yet to discover. 
And some of them come from the traditional research on morality as a function of care and justice. So care and fairness are the two that I think are most widely endorsed as concerns that people have that distinguish right and wrong. Like it's good to care for people, bad to harm people, and it's good to be fair and and have equality, bad to have injustice. Then we have loyalty, especially loyalty to one's group. Which I could imagine in the context of a relationship and partner, like loyalty is probably a huge thing. One of the items in the Moral Foundations questionnaire does ask about loyalty to family members. Um, then, Then we have authority, which is respect for leaders and institutions. So deference to religious or political leaders, for example, and attitudes about raising children, for example. Um, And then the last one is purity or sanctity, which is about basically kind of like your body is a temple and this correlates with spirituality, avoiding disgusting things, avoiding things that are degrading, especially things that, you know, people might consider to be perverse sexual actions or things like that. And I can see how all of these can be relevant to cheating, right? Like, uh, man, uh, especially the purity one at the end. I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about these potential risks to your partner and stuff, but I I feel like that could definitely be a concern. Yeah. So that's really cool. But the data didn't work out. So, so you need to, you need to do another study at some point to try to evaluate some of the ethics and morality, uh, from the perspective of the cheater. Exactly. Yeah. One other thing I thought about too, is just like the participants, are already engaged in dishonesty with one of the most important people in their lives, right? Their partner, except for maybe the small percentage of people who have ethnically non-monogamous relationships. And so it just doesn't speak well, I guess, to our trust in them as participants, to be honest, right? If they're already being, they're, they're almost characterized by the fact that they are dishonest with the most important person in their life. Why would they be any more honest with you as a researcher? Well, you could you could flip that around and say they are admitting to an unethical behavior. Like, why would they? Uh, yeah, but they're already on Ashley Madison. Like, that's already. Clear. Well, yeah, but they don't have to take our survey. No, no one's forcing them to do that. I mean, I think sure. I think there's there's two sides to that coin. On the one side, you could say this is a person who has been deceitful or deceptive in their relationship. But they're also admitting to us freely that they did this. And it seems like if if they're honest about that and they're telling us other things about their relationships and and how they felt and what their experiences was like, were, were like, you know, I would I would take that pretty seriously. If, if someone w- if someone was hiding their infidelity from us, then I would be more skeptical of the things that they said about their infidelity experiences. Sure. I, I guess I'm I, what I meant by they're already on the website is they, you know, they, that's already the cat's already out of the bag. We, we know that they're cheating. You don't know who they are. So they have that kind of like anonymity right. behind them. But I, I think like this is an opportunity. This this survey is an opportunity for them to salvage their like reputation in some sense, if not to uh, their partner, because they can't tell their partner and their friends and family they can at least do it with you and they can do it maybe for themselves a little bit. There's like the kinds of lies that we tell ourselves are almost some of the most powerful ones. And so there's this like we've talked about this already, this like kind of social desirability. And I just want to unpack that a little bit. So like they want to come across as like a better person than maybe they might feel like they are given that they're cheating on their spouse. And so they don't 
in some sense, they may not want to admit that their relationship is falling apart. Um, as a researcher, without their partner's input, and maybe even the input of common friends and family, it's kind of hard to say if the participants self-report about the quality of their relationship or how much they love their partner or how much they treat their partner with respect or or, or what have you. Some of the outcomes that, that y'all are tracking are actually accurate. Like maybe the, the partner taking the same survey would be like, yeah, this guy's horrible. He treats me terrible. And on, on when he gives the survey, you yeah. know what I mean? So it's, that's, it's a little unclear. How do you, how yeah, do you think so, about that? Was there a social desirability measure that, that you like controlled for, for some of the results? Good question. We did not have a measure of social desirability. A couple, a couple of things to note there. First of all, yeah, we, we don't have the partner response data. And that I that that would have given us a much more complete picture of what's going on here. Right. I think that it, 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 to to use the the theme of our podcast, it's it's complicated. And the the data that I would point to here to complicate the narrative come from the motivations that people say they have for infidelity. And as we talked about, there is a diversity of motivations that people might have, some of them stemming from the relationship and some of them stemming from other things. So when people said that they were less happy in their relationships, so the relationship quality was lower, they also felt more of the kind of deficit motivations. So they had more lack of love and more anger and lower commitment, but then you have a, a motivation like autonomy, which was positively associated with relationship quality. So when people said that they were motivated to have an affair because they wanted more independence and freedom in their life, they actually had higher feelings of satisfaction in their relationships. And then you can look at the longitudinal data from time one to time two. And here we see, once again, the different motivations have different outcomes. So for those who were more strongly motivated by sexual dissatisfaction, they were more likely to break up at the, at the time two of the study. But for people who were motivated by either lack of love or situational factors, they were more likely to stay together. So what that tells me is that having affairs is not this big monolith. And yeah, I think to some extent you're right that some people are doing lots of mental gymnastics, maybe deceiving us, maybe deceiving themselves in some way subconsciously about the state of their relationship. But some of them are they have they have different trajectories and their relationships are just on a different path and they're probably aware of this and they're probably saying to themselves, you know, my relationship is not perfect, but I want to keep it and also have sex. And, you know, I've, I've heard lots of people in the, the field of relationships talk about this. Monogamy is really hard. It's really freaking hard. And, you know, infidelity is more common than we would like to admit. Infidelity happens probably at least between 20 and 40% of marriages. And in some studies of dating relationships, it's over 50%. So that means it's common. Yeah. And the people in our study probably are aware of that to some extent. And you hear popular media figures talking about this as well. Folks like Dan Savage and Esther Perel 
talking about things like the difficulty and the challenge of maintaining monogamy. Dan Savage himself has advised people. I've heard him say, you know, if if you're in a relationship where your partner just is refusing to have sex, but you have kids together and you don't want to blow things up, you know, maybe going and having a little bit of sex on the side is the, the best of all possible options. So anyway, I, I think that I think that a lot of people are aware of this. I don't think it all boils down to mental gymnastics and justifying things yourself, deceiving yourself about the relationship. I think I think some to some extent, a lot of these folks are pragmatists. You know what I mean? I think I think I think I, I think I think monogamy is hard and people are pragmatic about that. Yeah. And we're almost getting to this interesting philosophical question that I think is at the heart of this paper. And and there's a really uh, great quote that that some people will hear and instantly detect something that they can't reconcile. So you say in the paper, participants sought affairs despite strong feelings of love for their primary partner. Now, in some sense, you're just presenting the data, right? You ask them if they love their spouses and the people who are cheating in their study in your study said yes. And they reported a lot of love for their partners. But I think as I was saying, a lot of people, particularly those who have been cheated on, would say, no, they don't actually love their partner. And on some level, there's this kind of def- definitional yeah. issue here about what love is, right? Um, how do scientists, I, I, and I, I just want to start here and then we can we can keep having this like more of a philosophical, almost semantic conversation about what love means. But how do scientists define love? Is non-consensual cheating consistent with the scientific definition of love and how we study it from from a social science perspective what is love baby Baby, don't don't hurt hurt me (laughs) (laughs) i i mean this this is this is the question that one of my labs in grad school was trying to answer like what what is love like how do we understand this this phenomenon you know to some extent maybe you're right that this is a kind of philosophical question like is a person really in love if they're if they're doing this i mean straight up i would say yes like that's 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 my instinct here but let's let's unpack it a bit more what is what is love exactly i think scientists would define love as something akin to a motivational state where you're trying to preserve the connection that you have and the relationship bond that you have with your partner over time. So you're expending time and energy and resources to be with this person, to have a connection with this person, to spend time with them, to be intimate with them more and more and more relative to other partners. So love, in a sense, and this is true in in the broader field of ecology and, and biology, love is selective preference for an individual relative mm. to others. But monogamy in other species, it's it's complicated, just like it is with humans. I mean, you have species where there's pair bonding and mating for life. But we know based on DNA evidence that there's infidelity with them, too. Right. Yeah, I've, I've seen this, too, where pra- prairie voles do have a life partner that they establish, but they yeah. sleep around and then yeah. they come back to their life partner. Yeah. I, it's, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's kind of funny. People like put prairie voles on on t-shirts and stuff like we love we love each other like prairie bulls and it's like exactly. but they also cheat so it's like i yeah i don't think from my knowledge and maybe somebody will fact check us on this but i don't think there is an animal that is monogamous in the sense of never have sex with another animal 
from the point that they find their monogamous partner forward. That is my understanding as well. So some species will have a lifelong social monogamy, which humans have and other species have, where like you say, we're we're monogamish. We're mostly exclusive with that one person, but still sleep around a little bit with others. And then there's serial monogamous. And I think some species of penguin fall into this category where they'll mate with someone exclusively for one mating season, but it's not for the rest of their lives. So so yeah, and and to to the broader question of, you know, is that really love if you're sleeping around with somebody else? Like I would say yes, according to the scientific definition of love and how we understand it based on research. Love in this case is more about the motivation to be with this one individual more so than others. And you're kind of, you're forming your life with this person. You're committing to them in in a sense forever. But it's really hard, as I said, to just have a sexually exclusive relationship with one person. And so we, we are, we're not really good at that in a sense and neither are other species. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear that definition from a scientific perspective of love laid out because i think you know if you are more familiar with the kind of romanticized poetic notion of love that comes from poetry and the humanities and the history of of all of that then you're like how are you not mentioning emotions you're not mentioning affect you're talking about motivations you're talking about behavior and like setting aside time to be with somebody and selectively spending time with them and so yeah, it's it's funny because we do study emotions. Yeah. Like there's we have effective science. That that is the the investigation of emotions. And so I don't know, would an effective scientist butt in here and be like, hey, you, what are you talking about? That is not love. That is like that's like trying to spend time with somebody, which is totally different. Being motivated to spend time with somebody. Love has to be an emotional state that you experience. And that's historically what we have called love. Like Shakespeare doesn't write plays about motivation to selectively spend time with someone you know he's he writes plays about the experience of love you know um so what what, what do you say to that i think emotions are connected to the experience of love but that doesn't mean that love is in itself the emotion let me let me put it to you this way when we're when we have these standardized scales like the positive and negative affect schedule like love is not listed on on that schedule of emotional states so it's it's just not in that category of things. And if you look at brain imaging research, you see when people look at pictures of their partners, we see more brain activity in the areas of the brain that are associated with motivation and reward, the pursuit of this person, mm. rather than areas thought to be more associated with emotion like the amygdala. And certainly we feel lots of joy when we're with our partners. In in some cases, kind of like a euphoric joy, especially early on when you have butterflies in your stomach, when you're with that person or whatever, especially when you're yeah. younger. But it's yeah. not just one type of emotion. I mean, you can have so many different types of emotions. You know, there, there's true popular notions that the people we love end up hurting us the most. We feel, you know, maybe even more angry right. or more jealous or more sad with respect to that connection. You know, love, love hurts. Like love makes us sad. It's not one type of emotion. It's like, like every emotion wrapped up into one experience. 
And so I want to explore also just like the real world situations that people find themselves in. So I think there's a lot of non-love reasons to express love to one's partner, especially as an adult, right? So maybe the people who use Ashley Madison presumably share a home and they share finances and they share friend groups and family relations and they have children together maybe and possibly even have a prenuptial agreement where the moment they are caught cheating, like their entire life will fall apart. And so they have a lot of reasons to kind of go through the motions of preserving the relationship and one of those motions might be the behaviors of love and even like the emotions and the beliefs and the cognitions that you would associate with love and are part of the like the internal psychological mechanisms of having those behaviors of engaging in love like behaviors with your partner. But ultimately, you kind of have this like almost real, real politic reason why you're doing it, right? You just want to stay in your home and you want to have your financial arrangement and you want to have your friends and family and you want to have your children and you want that to stay copacetic. And in order to do that, you have to just go through the motions of love. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you think, do you think that it could be part of what's I mean, going the, on? The, the real politic uh, idea that you speak of, I mean, we see this happening in other areas of life. We see it in the business world and in politics and, mm-hmm. you know, people maybe not pretending, maybe there's not, it's not like that it's 0% authentic. But right. yeah, the, the motivation is more practical. Now, in terms of the marital variables that people might have, like you said, shared finances and kids and the life that you build together, yeah, th- this is consistent with the investment model of relationships pioneered by uh, Carol Rosebolt and um, some other researchers to come out of that lab, including one of my mentors, now colleagues, Steve Dragotis at, at Hopkins. They describe investments as one of the variables that predict commitment to one's partner, in addition to something like satisfaction, which I guess you might say is a more genuine, affective, like, yes, I enjoy this relationship a lot. So sure, you know, some sometimes people are motivated by the pragmatics of relationships. And I would go as far as to say that I think that has been the primary motivator for people in relationships over the course of recorded history. Like romantic love was not usually the reason why people got married and became committed to each other. Like, you know, in in most societies throughout human history, marital relationships were meant to be more practical. They were meant to be for survival. They were meant to be for political alliances. They were meant to be for economics. The idea that love would factor in to the decision to spend your life committed to someone was almost kind of viewed as like laughably silly. Like, why would you do that? And 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 now it's like the opposite. Now we think, oh, well, if you're just, you know, if you're just going through the motions of love, then it's not a real love or a real commitment. And I would say, well, actually, most human experience would say otherwise. Most human experience would say most of the time people pair up and get married for practical reasons. And love was not seen as a requisite for marriage until very recently. And only in some cultures, ours in particular, North America, we have, you know, the the Disneyification of romantic love and and marriage but that's not the norm it never has been right that's interesting yeah i mean i I tend to think of us as being socialized so the fact that the past was a particular way is like eh, like we we developed in this culture yeah 
but but I, I take your point that it's it's a relatively new phenomena the way we like ex, you know expect love to be at the center of a marriage relationship. Something else I want to talk about are the risks to the partner that emerge from infidelity, right? So uh, I think the obvious one is STDs, um, of course, but there's also risk to the life you've built with your partner, as we've talked about, like that can come crumbling down the moment they find out that you've been cheating. And so it's a risk to your shared finances, to your children, to your relationship, to your home. And of course, there's the emotional tragedy of them finding out right I, I imagine there's some amount of people who get cheated on find out and then hurt themselves or kill themselves or something and so and not to mention just like being in a depression being like wrecked for the rest of your life worried that somebody's going to cheat on you next um and so these are all just like kinds of risks that you are putting your partner through for the mere act of just like having sex with somebody else and i think like that is at the heart, I think, of some people who are skeptical of this claim that they love the other person. Because if you loved the other person, would you really jeopardize their well-being and health the way you are in an inf- infidelity relationship? And so wh- how do you think about that? I mean, these are very real risks, both the physical risks associated with something like uh, sexually transmitted infections and unplanned pregnancies, and also the emotional risks that you describe. I think to some extent, some people might say, well, my partner's not going to find out, so what they don't know won't hurt them, which, of course, is deceitful and dishonest. And yes, there are people who have been cheated on and will be emotionally devastated by that. And I think that's where some of the other folks, especially some of the media figures I mentioned, people like Dan Savage and Esther Perel would probably want to counsel people into, you know, remembering the positive parts of their relationship and keeping in mind that one instance of infidelity, especially if it's not stemming from an underlying relationship problem, does not have to be the thing that wrecks your life. It does not have to be the thing that ruins your marriage and breaks up your family and has all these terrible consequences. With regards to the physical risks that you mentioned, this is one of the common things that people are concerned about with regards to open relationships. People are concerned about the spread of STDs. Now, the funny thing is, is that people in open relationships, if they're consensually non-monogamous, they are less likely to spread STDs relative to the monogamous folks who cheat. I say monogamous in scare quotes here because they're they're not actually monogamous, but they claim to be. Anyway, the the idea is that people, when they're cheating, are less likely to use contraception, less, less, less likely to use it at all, and, and less likely to use it properly. And so open communication about sexual behaviors is more responsible and, I think, more ethical than just going around and cheating. I think maybe people who have been cheated on would would be like, it's a analogous to abusive right so like if you have a partner who is abusive to you physically but then when they're not like they get drunk and they hit you but then when they're not they're they're like really loving and they say that they love you so much and if you ask them on a survey they would say i love my partner so much but you know i do hit them do you think that could be could it be that you love your partner and you also physically abuse them um i think the there there's so much other stuff in the intimate partner violence and abusive partner literature that we we don't necessarily see here 
And I'm, I suppose it could overlap. Like somebody could be an adulterer and an abuser. So I would say those relationship elements that you're hinting at could be there. But I, I, I do think, I mean, with, with an abusive partner that is physically violent, I mean, that, that, is, that is an extreme form of harm. And I think if an individual who cheats on their partner and doesn't want them to find out specifically to spare their feelings, that's a much different kind of motivation. And, you know, with inter- intimate partner violence, there could also be things like, you know, control over their bodies and behaviors and, and all, all, all kinds of very, very terrible, extremely unethical things. So you would say the harm is so great that you don't feel comfortable saying that they might also love the person they're abusing. I'm not sure that I would say that. I, I think it, it may it may indeed mm. be possible for people to love someone and also be abusive, but that doesn't necessarily right. make it analogous to infidelity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think I somewhat agree. I think like a person can be brought up in an abusive household where their their parents hit them and abuse them, not in like, you know, the standard like corporal punishment sense, which I think a lot of people of a certain demographic had experience. And, and I think that's a, that's different than actual straight up abuse, but grew up in that environment. And so their experience of love is such that it is mixed with violence in a way that they propagate onto their partner. And I think it's messed up and it's unfortunate and really what they need is counseling and, and help to get out of that. Uh, or, or, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, obviously they should be made to the, the, the real victim here is their partner who ultimately is at the hand of their violence. But I guess all of this is to say like human minds are complex enough where I suppose I will, ha- would have to say that like, there's some, something akin to love for that person, maybe. But it's also just like completely overshadowed by their abusive nature that like this person needs, you know, they, they have a victim that they claim they love and maybe they feel some some amount of love, something akin to love is kind of what I would say. And I guess that might be true. But but yeah, at what cost? Jesus, like they're 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 physically assaulting this yeah. person. Yeah. All of these analogies really just like drive home the same point, which is that cheaters are engage in a behavior that could create quite a bit of harm yet they say they love the person that they could you know release a lot of harm onto and i just think that's interesting i think people will struggle like reading the paper to like make sense of those two seemingly contradictory things but it is the nature of human psychology and human nature to exist as a contradictory organism that has like different aspects of ourselves that don't make sense. Like if you thought about them logically, but that is the, that is how it is to be human. Yeah. You said it. I mean, I struggle with it. Uh, I I look at these data and I'm blinking and staring at it and saying, Oh, how how do we make sense of this? How do do we, how do we understand this? I mean, yeah, you're right. People, people are complicated and there's more questions than answers from a study like this where I would say if I spent the entirety of my career just studying this one specific thing, we would still not have a fully complete understanding of what it means to love and also engage in some of these unethical behaviors. Well, 
This is an interesting paper. Spicy. I'm interested to see more people talking about it. I know it uh, just came out. Um, so great to talk about it with you. Dylan, thanks so much for, for being a guest on the show again. <laughs> right on. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks for thanks for all the thought provoking questions. And, you know, yeah. th this is a lot of fun to talk about. A lot of fun to do the study. And I, I hope it has an impact. Anything you want to end on or? I mean, I could talk about this for for hours. I think, you know, it. like I said, it's just it's hard. We shouldn't sh shy away from that. Like, I think some people think, oh, you know, the the Disney version of love and romance and relationships is the one that they're clinging to star crossed lovers. It's easy. Once you find the right person, it's just all smooth sailing from there. And it's just not like that's that's not how we are. That's not how relationships are. Relationships are hard work and filled with contradictory sentiments and behaviors. And we need to get good with that and just have honest conversations with each other about our needs and about ethics and not make weird assumptions that may not be consistent with the ideas that your partner has and especially with monogamy i mean you can't just say all right we're in a relationship now and expect that you and the other person have the same ideas about what that means it, it requires a process of constant communication and in some cases negotiation about the limits of the relationship about what people will tolerate it's not easy Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a rating, and share with a friend. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at A Bit More Pod or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com.